the thing is like, so uh, I can't believe I hit record. We should actually, I think, put a pin in that because I think we should talk about it. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it with you anytime, but I actually think this would be like, because he gets his gay ass haircut, we can see the haircut. I think this might be a worthwhile episode to talk about that in. Well, I think we're already talking about it. Uh, I mean, uh, 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 uh. oh, editing this is going to be fun. Welcome back to Check Displeased, a podcast that's been going on for 35 episodes and we still don't have a concrete intro. Today, we are talking about episode 2.2, Square One, which was originally posted on October 20th, 2014. I'm Secrets. Hello, as usual, I'm Tomato. I want you all to know that yesterday we set up to record and then instead talked for like four and a half hours, at which point we had to reschedule for today. Biddy opens uh, saying, hey y'all, did you miss me? With a truly wild set of expressions and gestures that we can get into at another time. He tells his followers that he has moved into the house and he also got a haircut. Uh, After he tells followers that he has taken to old habits, we shift to an image of Faber where Biddy is freaking out because he doesn't want to be checked because he just got, remember, a traumatic brain injury like three strips ago. Uh, And he blacks out. He comes to. Coach Murray is looking worriedly at him while Dex, newly on the ice, is also looking worriedly at him. Murray says, come talk to me after practice. Jack looks very intense in the background. In the coach's uh, office, Murray and what's that other guy's name? You know, the other coach. Anyway, they tell Biddy that he's improved a lot since starting out at Samwell, maybe even the most improved player. But actually, if he still has major issues with physicality, they can try having him talk to someone. But if they can't sort it out, well, hockey's a contact sport. So having Biddy on the roster might not be in the best interest of either Biddy or the team. And Biddy, you know, with giant eyes, sadly says, okay. He then goes out to the loading dock and weeps into his hoodie. Hey, y'all. <laughs> Did you miss me? In parentheses for some reason. Well, I sure as heck missed you. Let's talk about Biddy and uh, the way he's addressing his followers here. I have a couple of questions. Is that a gay-ass haircut, as Ngozi called it in the last blog post? Yes and no. Sometimes hair that's undercut can be gay. Unfortunately, sometimes hair that's undercut is just how all men wear their hair. Other than like notably shitty. Basically all of the men on this hockey team have the same exact haircut. Their hair is all different. Like you can tell that Biddy's hair is mostly straight. Jack's hair is not long enough to be curly, but it would be sort of like shaggy curly were it like a lot longer. That's why it sort of makes that weird swoopy bang. Ransom obviously has different hair. Holster obviously has different hair. But they're all basically wearing the same haircut, which is shaved on three sides and a little more on top, which is 
pretty standard for how men wear their hair. And indeed, it's also exactly how shitty wears his hair after he gets a haircut. So, like, maybe if he did a little more styling on top, it would seem much gayer to me. Or if there was more, like, evident care in the undercut itself. Like, if it was faded in a meticulous way. But it doesn't seem to be. That is how I feel about it as well. And there's one extra that Ngozi made right when Biddy gets the haircut, like, early summer, where he's in a tank top. And to me, when I saw that picture, I was like, he's gay. But when I see it in the comic, I don't have that sense necessarily, other than, you know, how he came out and told everybody he was gay. So that, that part I got. But in terms of the way he's presenting himself, as someone who has had an undercut for many years, like, I'm familiar with the ways that undercuts can operate um, to show different things about who you are and how they work and uh, how they communicate information about you. As far as it looks now that we see it dry and out of the shower with Jack Zimmerman not staring up and down Biddy's body, like looking like a serial killer, you know, nah, not too gay. Okay, my other question for you is that the posing of these two first frames is, and I quote you, like dot dot dot, yikes. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? This is not just typical, this is stereotypical. Somebody basically crashing into the frame, splaying their limbs everywhere while shouting exuberantly. Like literally every joint on the upper half of his body is articulated. That's gay, that's very, very gay. Like to me, the most evidently gayest thing about Biddy as he is like constructed within this comic is effectively like his posture and his gesture. Not so much what he looks like or even what he's wearing. In this comic, he's just wearing like a short sleeve polo shirt. That is not particularly gay. I mean, like, I don't know what to tell you. It's like very standard for like guys at college to wear like collared gray shirts. The second frame is ridiculous looking. He is contorting his body in such an absurd, loose-limbed manner he looks like one of those fucking jelly hands that you stretch out and it flies across the room and it smacks into the wall. Even though his shoulders are hunched at like 175%, he looks like he has no bones. I really like the first gesture that he makes. I think it's really bitty. It's gregarious, it's open, it's pretty gay. The second gesture in the second panel makes me uncomfortable just to see. Like, it just doesn't look like a human body should move that way. If you were like a little less exaggerated, it would be fine. But as it is, it's almost uncanny valley. So it just looks like his body's like coming apart at the seams a little bit because no human can like move quite that way. And uh, that's it. So Billy is an eldritch horror and Jack's a serial killer. There we go, we figured it out. His eyes don't help. He looks insane. I know this is not purposeful, but his eyes are also slightly off kilter. So that makes it worse because one eye is like a 
little too over. She just wasn't super careful on how she drew where his pupils would be looking if he had pupils. So it just looks like he's like, it ah. <laughs> just isn't quite put together right. But this is what I mean about like her style is not consistent. I've said this, I think, several times on this podcast over our run up to this point. The way he is constructed in panel one and panel two is just not consistent. The way that he's forcing his breastbone out in the second panel looks like he has some sort of bone deformity or like genetic evolutionary like RNA miswrites that he obviously doesn't have in the first panel. It's just, it's, yeah, it's like, it's like stereotypically gay to have somebody who's basically like a floppy Muppet like this articulating every single joint in their body at one time in a way that makes me like a little uncomfortable. Biddy and his queer identity is like not really part of year one and year two other than coming out, which is a little blip after which his sexuality is not addressed. And then in year two, his crush on Jack. But otherwise, we don't really get any sense of how he feels about his own sexuality, his relationship to sexuality in general, um, until years three and four when there's a, a major shift in how that plays a role in the story. If this is how his identity is constructed in the first year and bit of year two is primarily through stereotypical gesture, when we talk about things like representation, which, by the way, I think is a limited model for thinking about queer characters, but a useful model at times. What do you think like this does for creating a complex queer character? Does it? All of the queer characters in this story have the potential for complexity is subtextual in years one and two. And I think that's fine. There is a lot of discussion, especially in year one, about Biddy's position on the team and how he is outwardly, markedly different. However, it never comes to a head in a textual way. It's always sort of simmering below the surface. In years three and four, it becomes text. There's constantly speech bubbles about it. People, Biddy included, discuss it ceaselessly. My memory of those two years of the comic is that constantly, constantly, the comic was directly addressing the issue of being gay, coming out, it became the text of the comic, whereas before it was a subtext to the larger question of Biddy figuring out his place within the larger fabric of the college hockey team, the comic became about being openly gay in years three and four. It's possible that some of this is just because Biddy ends up in a relationship. So a lot of his potential queerness suddenly becomes actualized. And he has something to grasp onto and a way to talk about it rather than as like an abstract thing. 
I also think there are external factors of public discussions about the comic and critical positive receptions that sort of bear down on it to force this thread to become more prominent. But that's something that you can build a case around, but it's not really provable. I mean, I feel very similarly that all of the characters in the comic have the potential for complexity. The queer characters are among those, obviously, but often that complexity is elided or gestured towards without being fully explored. So that's just part of how this comic is written. One of the disconnects for me about being in this fandom, particularly when I got into fanfic, which is at the end of year two, is how there are major differences in how people receive Biddy's queerness or gayness and his relationship to his sexuality. Some people find it incredibly affirming. And I'm curious why I don't. <laughs> like, why do I find this frustrating? Why do I find this lack of interiority and complexity with Biddy? Why do I find the way that he borrows from stereotypes sometimes frustrating, even though it's like fine if you as a person, like I'm stereotypical in some ways, all people, you know, have something about them which is readable in a larger context as like quote stereotypical unquote. So, but Biddy's not a real person, he's a text. So I guess it's just sort of, I'm trying to figure out why I find the text frustrating. This is a much, much larger conversation than I think we can really have here. So to try to keep it like really nailed to check, please. Why does this character have these stereotypes is the question that we need to be asking. What is it telling us about this character? And also, what is it doing within the context of this story? Fandom had been circulating a discourse about stereotypes that basically went like this up through the mid-2010s, possibly earlier. You made the point that it varies by fandom and it varies by, you know, what part of fandom you're situated in. And that's certainly true. But I want to just generalize that up until Tumblr era, I think the discourse on stereotypes was stereotypes are harmful, period. You cannot tell anything meaningful about a person by which stereotypes they conform to. Don't use stereotypes to code your characters as anything. Like a lot of things, this is something where I think neither extreme stereotypes are always harmful and they're always not based in anything and they have no portability or everything is readable based on stereotypes. They're always accurate and informative. Neither of those positions is really true and certainly neither of them is true all of the time. The case is that like some gay men are like this or because they're not, we're not whatever fabrications of like a set of attributes picked and chosen by an author to construct a character. People are a little bit more complicated than that. But like, yeah, I mean, this is not coming from nowhere. At the same time, as you pointed out, because 
Biddy is a text. Biddy is not like anything. The only thing he is like is the way that his author constructs him. So we get led back to the question of what is the use of this set of attributes in this particular text? My feeling has basically been that the point of check plays, if you leave aside the sort of plot of Biddy wins, is basically to say the mere existence of a person like this in a space that they wouldn't typically inhabit is progress because it is a deconstruction and a destabilizing of toxic masculinity. I am not satisfied personally with that. The mere fact that somebody who is wildly flamboyant is on a hockey team where people are not typically flamboyant is a pretty truncated political point. Thinking about how a character is represented on the page through, as you said, um, stereotypical coding or something can be really interesting. And I actually have, I think Biddy's relationship to what it means to perform being gay is like probably really interesting one and something that people should write fanfic about. It's, there's something about the comic and the lack of access to Biddy's interiority, the lack of understanding that I have as to how he conceives of himself that makes him feel flatter as a character. And therefore, because he is after all, a series of attributes chosen by an author and drawn, that can be very frustrating because when a stereotype is flat, it's just a stereotype. It's not actually something that someone is living. It's not questioning the stereotype. It's not pushing at it. That can be how it comes across. So that's helpful for me thinking about why in this moment, I am frustrated by the fact that Biddy's collarbone looks like it is broken in half and he is jutting it forward into the ether. Within like a like writing fanfic context, my pushback on this has always been, what if the fact of Biddy is just that he is a relatively shallow person? He's a shallow character in the context of the narrative because he is a shallow person. So like... That's really interesting, but I don't think it's meant that way. I think we are supposed to be reading, like, significant interiority in him. That I feel comfortable saying because the author has basically asserted that people who don't like these choices around Biddy are missing his interiority. Again, it's like, this is one of those things that's subjective, Certainly a lot of people read this story and they see a lot of depth in this character. A lot of people also don't. You know, when you're being fanish about it, there's the potential to read it both ways. Like, you know, you want to write a fanfic about Biddy, you can go in a sort of, you know, dark comedy direction where you take him at face value or you can deepen him through fan works. I would also propose... In the context of this particular strip, because what happens next is he recounts this incident of relapsing in his attempt to overcome physical contact on the ice and is told that if he doesn't get it the fuck together, he should leave the hockey team. It's possible that in these first two frames, the framing device for the comic, he is 
overcompensating by being really performative because he's about to tell this story about an incident where he looked really small and seemed relatively powerless and like he was being dominated by both the other people on his hockey team and the coaches of the hockey team and the sort of circumstances around his being on the hockey team. So in these first two frames where he's about to tell his viewers about these incidents and how it made him feel, he's filling the whole frame up. He's using as much of his body as he possibly can. And his fucking hey y'all speech bubble is gigantic and the entire frame is just entirely taken up by Biddy. The purpose of him thrusting his chest out like that even though I I don't know she was playing with posture I don't know how you even find a reference photo for this particular gesture. He's taking up more space more physical space within the panel his body's total width from like, you know, butt to like fingertip is much larger because of how he's posing. I think you could make the reading if you wanted to be charitable, that there is a contrast here and a very pointed transition between the way he is artificially performing storytelling for his audience and then what actually happened making us tomato the brechtian spectators you know what i like that do i think it was intentional i don't know sure why not no (laughs) in Classes where you workshop another person's creative work, they tell you if they're nice to put, uh, to assume that everything was done deliberately. So let's do that with Ngozi and just assume it was all done deliberately. Okay, cool. So that explains something about this particular panel that I actually really like then. The contrast of Biddy's kind of overperformativity and his insecurity that we uh, are definitely at least supposed to read into him in this particular strip. I still think there are more questions to unpack about kind of him as a character as we go, but you know, we'll talk about it when we get there, which is every strip because it's about Biddy. I did also, you have a, a, a bit in our outline, which is just, did you miss me? So did you have more you wanted to say about that? Put a pin in it. All right. It's coming soon, everybody. All right. The panel is dramatic, but also a bit jokey because Biddy is so over the top scared. So again, this is one of those panels where, uh, this is the panel in favor where we see Biddy actually faint. Again, this is one of those panels where Ngozi walks this line where you can read it seriously. You can read it as a a real sort of exploration of Biddy's post-concussion trauma, or it's a joke because he's so over the top scared. And it's hard to tell which we're supposed to read it as. I kind of think it's both. Given the context of the fainting goats joke of last season, you know, or last uh, last year of the comic, it seems likely that at least it's in conversation with other jokes about Biddy's fears. So I just want to point out that I thought that was really interesting, primarily because of the way that the comic treats physical injury versus how it treats other kinds of trauma. Jack's anxiety is always taken really seriously. Jack is never made fun of for having anxiety. Biddy's fear, on the other hand, his physical injuries, including two concussions and a fucking tooth that gets knocked out, 
uh, spoilers, everybody, for year four. But other kinds of physical injuries are treated really lightly. This includes some of Jack's physical injuries. I don't think we see anyone else get really seriously physically injured, but they're just treated as not traumatic incidents. I thought that was really interesting because I never noticed it before. And I think when we look at this in the context of is Checkley's deconstructing toxic masculinity, that's one of the questions that's worth looking at because downplaying physical injury is a huge part of toxic masculinity in sports culture. It's certainly not only in sports culture. It's certainly not only masculinity. If you look at other really, really hardcore types of athletes, like, I don't know, you know, you hear stories about ballerinas dancing on broken feet, you know, that sort of thing. So it's certainly not only toxic masculinity, but I will suggest that it is certainly part and parcel of hockey's relationship to injury. And so even as the comic has some of those speech bubbles, which decry the culture of hockey, isn't this also a kind of assimilation into hockey culture? Now, what I will say about hockey culture is that hockey culture also does not care about in, like emotional injury at all. So it's certainly at least partially deconstructing that. I guess it also, we have to ask whose emotional injuries are being treated seriously because Jack's anxiety is treated seriously. Biddy's emotional reaction to physical trauma, as well as his emotional reaction to previous physical slash emotional trauma, i.e. getting locked in the closet, being called, you know, horrible words, whatever. Those things are treated more seriously towards the end of the comic. But at this beginning part, all of it is, it's always a punchline. I think if the comic hadn't gotten and, you know, the packaging around the comic hadn't gotten so self-serious about the meaning of somebody like Biddy playing hockey or the meaning of somebody like Jack playing hockey, then the fact that it didn't give Biddy's brain injury a lot of weight wouldn't be an issue. The problem is that the comic positions itself as doing good work to try to rectify problems with hockey. Well, this type of injury is a big problem with hockey. So the fact that it's not really well considered here or really at all throughout the comic, to be honest. Like, it, it doesn't really treat physical injury with a lot of weight. Is indicative of how willing the author is to pick and choose what it is that she wants to criticize. You know, the sort of physical injury, like the, the sheer brutality of hockey as like a physical sport, is tied into the social, cultural, mental, emotional problems with it. Like, they are intertwined. It is a psychological mentality that leads people to getting injured like this. Like, ritual violence is not just physical violence. It's also, like, a kind of psychological training. I think the way in which these issues tend to get split apart is not necessarily doing anybody any favors. But I feel like this is all just shades of things that we've said before. We've discussed a little bit how characters are given various labels of things they could be dealing with because of the way that their actions are readable in the context of a comic that labels like truly almost nothing. 
and so people have talked a lot about how Biddy has PTSD in my circles of the internet. It's not something I ever read into Biddy before. And that's primarily because even though he has these traumatic reactions in this particular circumstance, so maybe one could say that that's a kind of PTSD. I just happen to be more familiar with the kind of PTSD that disrupts other parts of your life. And that doesn't seem to be part of Biddy's experience, at least as we see it in the comic. So I'm not saying that's absolutely not a reading. It totally is a reading. It's just not a reading that I particularly read into the character. However, this time around, I'm seeing it much more. And I guess I have a question to you. Does Biddy have PTSD? I mean, the answer is going to vary based on who's reading it and what their goals are, which isn't a very exciting answer, is it? What I think is that for the first three quarters of the comic, it's pretty evident that he was not being written with any particular diagnosable problem in mind. I think it's possible that discourse around it influenced the author. At the very end of year four, they very particular inciting incident that could have caused PTSD is introduced. But notably, that's within like the last four comics of the whole thing. If we are talking about a character who has PTSD, I would think that like the way that the narrative keeps forcing him to like relive his trauma is not helpful. I don't think he was ever meant to have PTSD. I think the idea that like one inciting incident caused him to develop this particular aversion to physical contact in combination with harmful, like, bigoted sports culture incited all of these problems for him. But, like, I don't know, reading this strip here, it's really hard for me to, like, look at this and be like, oh, yeah, this guy definitely has post-traumatic stress disorder. That's not a reading I ever made by myself. But the comic, I mean, okay, so now I'm kind of, like, both sizing it, and I'm, like, hopping back and forth. The comic doesn't love naming things. It loves to draw giant circles of issues around characters without ever like putting into concrete language like what it is that's actually going on. So I know we talked a lot about like Jack never names his own sexuality. Well, nobody ever names the mental illness he has either. We know he has anxiety and it seems as though he was getting some kind of like psychiatric treatment for it. And he has medication prescribed to him and it's recurrent but like what condition he has or like if he has a diagnosis is never named never referenced and the most information we have about it exists in the hockey prince which is this like disconnected super real fairy tale style comic Yeah, this comic doesn't like to name things. And you can kind of understand why, but it's also like, you're never going to get a strip where Biddy was like, well, I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh boy, it's just like a rhubarb jam or whatever. I don't know. How does he talk? I don't, who is Biddy? (laughs) 
That's the question we've all trying to be an- being answered. I think this is one of the things that I really love about Check Please and am increasingly frustrated by. Fiction that has really concrete labels for things can be really affirming and it can also be really limiting. I personally, for various reasons, love stories about mental illness that don't specify like, and this is my diagnosis and these are my medications. But sometimes when you add so many concrete details, it can read like a list of symptoms rather than an exploration of uh, an interiority, right? So there are things about this that I really like. There's also a problem when you are not specific because sometimes being specific has its values. So this is one of the things that is so appealing slash frustrating about Checkley's is that by drawing these huge circles of issues around characters, you can both read into and get lots of information from very tiny details in canon, while also the author gets to avoid ever having to make or take responsibility for a particular representation of any particular experience. And so you kind of end up in this weird territory where maybe Biddy has PTSD, maybe he doesn't. I think it's really cool that we can read that into him or not. Like I still probably don't really read the characters having PTSD personally, but that doesn't mean that it's not a really interesting and valuable reading from another fan writer or something, right? Like totally into it. Also, yes, by the way, right, CPTSD also exists. And I think there are really interesting stories to tell about how Biddy becomes who he is because of the combination of these various inciting incidents and kind of toxic sports culture, and also probably toxic figure skating culture, which is toxic in completely different ways. Like, I think there's a lot to be thought about there. Ultimately, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a problem, or there is a difficulty anyway, if not a problem, when a piece of media borrows the socio-political seriousness of some of these issues without thoughtfully engaging with what those consequences might be for any given character. And I think this is something Chick Please suffers from quite a bit, even as its conversation about itself becomes more self-serious and more interested in what, like the critique that Chick Please may or may not be making about various socio-political issues, including violence in hockey, toxic masculinity, sexuality, trauma, et cetera, et cetera. The author's dislike for naming things specifically is often very frustrating. It's her right to do this. I'm not saying how you should or shouldn't manage the readership of your own artwork. However, as a fan, it is frustrating that she often withholds taking positions or concretizing or making statements about what's canon within her own work until fans vocally settle onto readings that she dislikes and then all of a sudden she's very eager to correct and or condemn what fans are doing. So that's a little frustrating. In terms of not naming any sort of condition or being specific, Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it frees her from having to follow or, you know, keep to any sort of, like, realistic outline of, like, a responsible or a realistic depiction of a mental illness or whatever. It also opens the doors for a lot of like fanish activity in the form of theorizing and speculating, which is really useful and also like really fun and really productive. 
We've said this before. I think it's the position of this podcast that posts and meta that are like, you can read Biddy as having PTSD. Here's what PTSD is. Here's what's going on with Biddy. This is why you can make this reading. That's really great. That's like a really productive kind of fan activity. Biddy definitely has PTSD. It's canon. This is the only way to read what's going on with him. That's not good. The panel right after Dex checks Biddy at practice, and there's three speech bubbles overlaid on a black background as Biddy is sort of like coming to on the ice, and they say, Biddle. And then the second speech bubble comes a bit more into focus, and it says, Biddle. And then the last one is still a little hazy, but it's the most in focus, and it says, Biddle, come on, Biddle. This exact panel is reused in 425 when Biddy faints on the ice at Faber, so same place, after Jack has proposed to him. The dialogue within the bubbles is changed, but it's the same panel just with like the the words changed intentionally obviously which is so interesting isn't it because if you reuse the panel for biddy fainting because of fear and biddy fainting because of happiness that tells you something about the quality of his happiness doesn't it well yeah i mean i was gonna say how do you know that the second time he wasn't also fainting out of fear the next couple of panels we get a shot of jack observing what's going on with Biddy. He's saying ellipses. So um, we're not sure exactly what this means, but he's got a look of like concern or something. I don't have very many thoughts about this other than I really enjoy how you wrote it on our outline, which is Jack has a rare synapse. Not sure which coach this is with the strong brows, but he and Biddy also have the same haircut, just saying. Okay, Holster, we figured out is gay. Coach Murray is gay. We've got it. We've got it. We're getting it done. In the coach's office, I think if we're, if we're reading a contrast between these scenes and the earlier scenes of Biddy talking to his vlogdians, um, you'll notice that his posture here is like tucked into itself. He's like crouching and folding his arms and his shoulders are shrugged up and he's looking a bit down. So he's sort of like almost balling up as if to make himself very small. But you have pointed out that that box at the top left says, you just kind of get used to it. Actually, what it says is, you kind of just get used to it. Doesn't matter. Um, You asked basically, like, who is this directed to? I mean, obviously, it's like, Biddy's narration over his vlog, but the point I would make about this dialogue box is not necessary, shouldn't be there. Don't need it, not doing anything. 
I think it's not only not doing anything, which is a frequent frustration I have with Biddy's blog voiceovers, as we've discussed, but it's formatted really poorly for comprehension. Like it does not follow from what Biddy actually says. The last thing that we see Biddy say to his followers is now that I've been cleared to practice, I've taken to old habits. I guess you kind of just get used to it, could follow from that, but it doesn't really make sense. It not only isn't adding things, it actively makes the panel more confusing when it's perfectly clear what's happening in the panel without it. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're supposed to understand is that his narration is going on in the first two panels and then he's continuing to narrate the story to the audience but we're not hearing him narrate it we're seeing it happen in real time as he's retelling it to the audience and we're being reminded that this is a story that he's telling his vlog audience because this little dialogue box is coming back but yeah, it's just, I mean, I don't know. I guess she's trying at this point to stick with the framing device of the vlog. But it's its just not necessary. Yeah, I, I agree that that's what I assume she was trying to do. But I think the momentary, like, what is not worth that work? I mean, if, in, if indeed, like, the reader even notices that that box is there. You, you made a note about them calling him their most improved player. I don't have that much to say about it. I just think this is the first step. Well, it's really the second step, isn't it? Because he won that award. So this is the second step in Biddy wins everything and is good at everything he tries. And that's how he'll get Jack Zimmerman to make love to him, you know? So, I mean, let's be real. Jack Zimmerman may not be the person doing the making in that sentence. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, I also thought it was interesting in context of the coaches bringing up the suggestion of Biddy going to a sports psychologist, or at least this is what I assume saying we can have you talk to someone means. And then you had some interesting points about that that I thought were worth thinking about. Um, I just want to point out that this is the closest thing we ever get to mental health care discussed in the comic in actual concrete terms. So the thing I would say about the most improved player is like, yeah, no shit. He's the most improved player. He's the worst player who shouldn't be on the team. Managing to not faint in the middle of hockey practice one time is a significant amount of improvement. And that's not me being snarky. That was the plot of year one of the comic. So, like, yeah, easily he's the most improved. Like, he's, he doesn't suck complete ass just mostly. Huge improvement. Yeah, so this thing about we can try to send you to, you know, we can try to have you talk to somebody. It's like, wh- what do you mean you can try? Fucking send him to somebody. Get this guy to figure it out. You're at a goddamn school that has, like, mental health services. Go fucking talk to somebody. Why didn't you suggest this last year? Like, you are the worst hockey coaches ever. No wonder you basically end up, like, out of the comic after this. Be proactive. What are you fucking doing? Benny is a first-line winger who sets up shots for their star power center. 
Like, yes, fucking fix him. Get him to somebody. Like, do something. You people got to the Frozen Four last year on the strength of this guy setting up plays for your most productive player. Be a little more proactive. That's what I'm saying. This is obviously more about Biddy's pathos than it is about logic. Because as you said, if coaches were good, they would be like, oh, this person is really valuable to our team. Guess we should help him out. We have a sports psychologist there. Like I am 100% sure that there is someone on, on the campus who like knows about sports psychology. But then I started thinking about how we've discussed that Check Please operates at least partially in the genre of fanfic rather than like anything else. And so I started thinking about how pathos is used in fanfic often in very much more absurd ways than coaches just being bad coaches. And then I started thinking about One Direction, <laughs> One Direction fanfic, X Reader, which is not a genre I've ever read because like, I don't care about One Direction in really any way at all, but especially not fanishly. And I personally do not read like reader insert fic. It is not for me. This made me think about how in the beginning of those fanfics, like really outlandish things happen to people so that, you know, you know, Harry, what's his name can come Harry Styles. I know his name. That was me trying to look like I didn't know Harry Styles' name, but the truth is that I do. So Harry Styles can come and like, you know, make out with you or whatever. I don't know. So I started thinking about how, because pathos is operating in this way, in this comic, really, this is one of the things that ties it to fanfic. One of the wonderful things about fanfic, including fanfic that's like not doing anything subversive with fanfic tropes, just like regular old like Babe Mac and Rainbow Shine fanfic. One of the things that's wonderful about it is that it's really interested in creating certain, I would say, emotional reactions in the reader, often at the expense of making sense. Like the feeling that fanfic tries to evoke in the reader. In this moment, I think Check Please is operating as kind of like fanfic wise and that it's trying to evoke a particular reaction. We're supposed to feel sad for Biddy. We're supposed to feel this sort of like poignant ache um, as opposed to thinking about like what a good story about a hockey team would be like. So I think that's an interesting thing because I think it makes Check Please weaker as a story, as a piece of original fiction that stands on its own that like has an internal logic and that we can follow and make sense. But I think it makes it really effective in building an emotional bond between Biddy and the reader. And so for Ngozi's purposes, isn't that kind of more effective? Well, you pointed out first, before we get to Biddy crying, you pointed out that his eyes here look kind of wild and uh, fully, fully agree. They are dinner plate sized. And then for some reason under that I wrote, he looks like his parents are telling him to follow a trail of breadcrumbs into the woods. Everybody, I'm just going to come out and tell you, my, my maybe favorite emotion to feel that a piece of fiction can give me is the feeling stricken. I love feeling that feeling. I love when a character feels that feeling. I think it's like the best fictional feeling that anyone can explore for me personally. It's just my favorite. And I'll tell you, in this moment, that he looks stricken. And I'm into it. However, when I say I'm into it, I don't mean I think it's, quote, good art, end quote. I think it's like, he looks like the little match girl, like, and his eyes are full of visions of, like, a warm Christmas fire by which hockey players lay, and he's out in the cold, burning his matches and about to die. He looks like a chinchilla. 
He does look like a chinchilla. The other thing he looks like is these two, like, street urchin characters on The Simpsons. I think their names are like Patches and Poor Violets, and they're constantly coughing and saying they need money for vitamins. Oh, Biddy. Well, Biddy does follow the breadcrumbs out to the back of Faber, where he is not greeted by a witch who will feed him a pie before eating him, but instead is alone and just sobs into his hoodie um, in another blatant but effective appeal to pathos. Uh, I just wanted to point out that this is a somewhat visual parallel to Jack on the loading dock, very clearly. And Ngozi, in fact, talks about that in the blog post that we are going to dissect in a moment because it's a real, what would you say secret? It's a real juicy fruit. Uh, Look, here's the thing. In another life, last week perhaps, I would have gone back and reread all of year one of the comic to see if, in fact, this is the first time Biddy cries. But for whatever reason, I was just like, oh, I can't reread year one of this comic. So I didn't. But I'm pretty sure it is the first time he cries. And I think it's really notable. For one thing, I don't think he cries again until the end of year two. I think he cries next at graduation as he's like walking away from Jack, which you want to know what an appropriate time to cry. By the time we get to year three, especially the end of year three, he is crying in every single strip. And I am not exaggerating all of them. He cries and he cries and he cries like he is a metaphor. And I hate it. And we'll talk about it later. I do like, yeah, the way that he's shrouding himself in his hoodie. And again, I think it sort of continues this vocabulary of a contrast between him filling the frame in the first couple of panels and the way that he's like shrunken in on himself and like folded over and like as small as possible. And if you look at that final panel, obviously it's like overlaid with a couple of frames of him sniffling as he opens the door and wiping a tear from his eye as he sits down. But he's, yeah, like his knees are knocked together. His feet are facing inward. I don't, in fact, think that's a way that it's possible to sit. Um, He's hunched over. He's sort of like leaning against the the door frame and he's pulling his hood like kind of almost over his head. So he really is just like balling up. He's like shrinking in like a, like a turtle or something, visibly making himself smaller. And within the whole frame with like the staircase leading up to the rink and the empty parking spaces with like residual rainwater and like leaves stuck sort of in the, in the crease where the sidewalk meets the asphalt. He looks very small and relatively insignificant. The insignificance and smallness of Biddy against this giant slab-like impenetrable form of the hockey rink itself, which of course is like symbolic of the institution. We shit on this comic a lot. I don't mean check please, I mean like this particular strip. This is a really nice panel. It's well executed. I think the fact that he starts crying in this particular instance is potent because he hasn't done it before. He doesn't cry all the time. He isn't set off by like just about anything. 
it means something that the weight of being dismissed from this hockey team, potentially, after all of the work he did to, like, stick with it on the hockey team up to this point in the comic, like, that means something. The idea that he would lose this is potentially disturbing to him. Around this time, a year ago in the comic, he was basically saying that Jack was such an asshole, he was thinking of quitting, considering voluntarily leaving because he hated the experience so much. A year later, both in the life of the comic and in his own life, he has become so integrated into and values the team so highly that the thought of having to leave it is reducing him to this. So it's nice. It's really nice. And like, this is a really well-drawn frame. This is a really well-drawn panel. And it's a really effective place to like, leave this off. Is yes. brought up in this particular strip ever effectively dealt with? No, obviously it's not. This is check, please. I think this is a beautifully drawn panel. When I said it's an appeal to pathos, like, it appealed to me. It was effective. I think this is the same part of Ngozi, which is really skilled at understanding how there's a punchline and appropriately creating the shape of a joke, even if the joke itself is not always like the funniest thing on the planet. I think this is also a kind of punchline. It's just a sad punchline, right? Like it's a one-two punch with Biddy's lone figure by Faber. It's really effective. I will say, I do think he has uncommonly flexible knees, but I remember a certain era of like, I would say early emo rocker girls who sat like this a lot. So there is, that was the visual reference that to me, this made me think of. Although he does manage to turn his feet in farther than almost anyone else maybe could. So nice job, Biddy. But for me, this is a a particular kind of stance. uh, Like it speaks to a certain kind of vulnerability, right? Whether or not you have that particular perspective or if I even remember it correctly. Up to this point, we haven't really made a habit out of like digging into entire blog posts. Sometimes interesting things are said in them, but... This is the first time that I've ever seen a blog post where I was just like, well, I have things to say about eight things on this page. So the point at the top is, I think, worth reading in its entirety. While that update bummed everyone out, though this comic is filled with warm fuzzies and classy humor, it has a protagonist, and protagonists need to struggle. And since ours is a tiny, defenseless, big-eyed, pie-baking angel child, it's difficult to watch him suffer. But shit happens. Remember that time Jack was a petty dingus? Or when Biddy got a shit-rocked and launched into a time-slowing monologue? There'll be CP updates that will make you have all the feels. And updates that will make you have, holy shit, all of the feels. Take them away. Fuck. I can guarantee that Biddy's story is ultimately a happy one. Seriously. Like, so fucking happy. This is so interesting. Because it's basically telling us everything we need to know about reading this comic. It's also, I think, indicative of the fact that the author feels self-conscious and possibly insecure about 
introducing conflict into the comic, she automatically has to reassure everybody that don't worry, what's happening in this strip doesn't actually matter. And that is something that I think will begin to drive us insane. I really, I really wish she didn't do this. I don't think it was helping her. And I think it's indicative of the kind of story this is and the kind of project it is in general, which is not willing to let the reader sustain an unhappy cliffhanger for even like a few weeks until the next update. I think it's also indicative of this pattern that I have seen from Ngozi for the rest of the comic in which she is very interested from what I can tell in controlling reader response. And this is in ways that become increasingly frustrating as she begins to critique the way that people do fandom. Why I find this frustrating is because it's not only indicative of a problem of the comic and the storytelling, i.e. no tension can exist in it. And there are arguments to be made about stories that don't have tension in them, but Check, Please is not one of them. So Check, Please is clearly using tension in order to build its plot. But because Ngozi doesn't let us kind of suspend our disbelief and stay in that tension, it's constantly undercut. I suppose that's comforting. And what's interesting is that this happens in fandom all the time. That's why when you see like really dark movies that get a lot of fic, like, I don't know, oh, It Chapter 2, a lot of the fic and fan art for It Chapter 2 are really, really, really fluffy, plotless comfort fic, which is fine. It doesn't happen to be like my favorite style of fic, but often that will be a response to the pain that someone might feel watching a difficult piece of media. What's interesting to me is that Ngozi is doing this in this moment, but the pain that Biddy's feeling here is temporary anyway. This is like the pain of young adulthood and figuring out who you are and figuring out what you want to do and whether you have the capacity to do it. This is a pain that I would say as far as pains go is like pretty gentle. Yes, it's hard to be told maybe you can't do this thing, but it is not a huge tragedy to me and my life experience. Now, maybe for someone else it would be, I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. What I find interesting about this is that I see this as a way of Ngozi controlling reader reaction. It just so happens that for me, it feels condescending and irritating as opposed to reassuring. So I'm curious what kind of calculus about her audience she was playing when she wrote it. I don't remember reading this the first time around. I'm sure I did. And I'm sure I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, because I was not yet fully fanishly engaged in the comic in a deep, deep way. Now I can tell you, I'd be like, don't tell me how to feel. Not only do you not need to tell us that the comic is going to have a happy ending, I think it actually negates the affect that you're trying to create in this particular strip. If you've just felt down about the fact that Biddy may have to quit the hockey team because he's regressed in his checking aversion, being told immediately, like immediately, this is effectively inconsequential. It doesn't really matter. His story will be very happy. You're basically telling the reader, like, what's on the page isn't really important. I also think it speaks to 
some kind of insecurity about allowing your readers to just carry an emotion from what they've just read into the next thing that they read. Like it's trying to control how the readers feel about the strip. Don't be afraid of your readers feeling sad because you wrote something sad. Oftentimes, if you're in like a check please critical space, you get embroiled in these debates about, like we talked about this with FFA, people, me included at various points, making the comment that I thought this comic was going to go differently because it had conflict and down emotions at various points. That led me to think that like, okay, it's ultimately a happy story, but it's willing to live in the space of unhappiness and displeasure at times. It's part of the comic. After this, like, Biddy's story is so fucking happy comment, she immediately says, fun fact, Holster also suggested that they use Biddy's check phobia to their advantage a year ago. Okay, you, you don't need to point that out. Like, it's not that long a co- like, it's not that long a comic. It's not a fun fact. It's just like not trusting your reader to get your callbacks. I can't say how she feels. I can only tell you what I see from the way that she interacts with people online and from things like these blog posts. But from what I see, it certainly seems like she's not willing to just let a reader interact with her work and have whatever reaction they have. And I find that understandable because when you create something, you often want to evoke a particular reaction, but the reality of creating something and putting it out into the world is that anyone who wants to can read it and have whatever feelings they want about it, and they can say whatever they want about it as long as they're not harassing you. And this is the reality of making art. This is just how it is. And this is something that Ngozi is decidedly really seems to have a different opinion about that. I think that the way that the world of Check Please feels really varied and full of detail outside of the comic was something that made it really engaging and fun when the Twitter was open, when I was hungry for every detail about the world that I could get. And when I didn't have such a different opinion over what was on the page and what I was supposed to feel about it, I actually didn't really mind being told what to feel about it because, you know, sure, whatever, you're just telling me what I already think, so that's fine. When I was first reading these strips, I didn't have deep, thoughtful opinions about the characters. I also think that what is now readable in retrospect in multiple ways, at the time it didn't occur to me to read them in multiple ways because there just wasn't enough hinting at that, that there were kind of two ways of reading the narrative going on for me to do so. None of this bothered me the first time around, but now when I go back and see it, was this story ever going to be what I thought it was? I still think there were changes to canon made because of things that happened in the fandom, but maybe it never was going to be the story that I thought it was going to be. And that's like an interesting thing to have to come to terms with. You put in a callback to something that happened in the comic a year ago, but there's not that much of the comic. Some people are going to get the callback. Some people may miss the callback. You have to be okay with the fact that just like, yeah, some some readers aren't going to get it. You don't need 100% intent comprehension from every reader all of the time. And I would actually argue that trying to make that happen makes stories much less interesting a lot of the time. 
that can actually really significantly reduce the resonances and complexity of the story because they are so sure that that vision must be shared in a particular way that it can reduce what's wonderful about art, which is that everybody brings their own experience and sight to it and then views it and thinks about it and feels it in a different way. And then are able sometimes to connect to each other across those feelings and sometimes have completely different reactions. This is like one of the coolest things about making art and engaging with art. I think that's like really, really cool. And I think when you try to control a reader's experience so rigidly, you not only limit reader experience, but you also limit the possibilities of the work that you're making. Like one of the coolest things about art for me personally is like as someone who makes art is that people pick up on things you don't know you're putting in there. There's this concept, which I may have talked about before in this podcast, I can't remember, introduced by this guy named Mikhail Bakhtin, who's a pretty cool, pretty cool guy. And he, have we talked about heteroglossia on the podcast? You have brought it up, but we have not, I think, strictly speaking, like broken it down. That said, I think it's a concept that I would expect most of our listeners are going to understand and agree with, even if they have not heard it named like that before. Essentially, heteroglossia is this idea that when you read a text, you not only get the reader, the the author's particular intentions, and you can kind of pick up on certain things about that author's worldview through reading the text, but you also get all of these other voices. So you get the social voices of the context in which the art was made. You get the particular social institutions that the art is reacting to. You get the things that the art is emulating, different registers of conversation about various kinds of things. And you can read all of this by looking at the language of the text, lots of things about the production of that text in the text itself. But if you constantly try to control what your reader can get out of a piece of work, you cut off all of these really lovely and important and analytical opportunities and emotional opportunities. Like not every reader is gonna have the same emotional reaction to Biddy crying here. And you know what? That's cool. That means that you're speaking to many different experiences. So uh, I don't know. I find this like a very frustrating tendency of Ngozi's that gets increasingly frustrating as the comic continues because the comic gets into more contentious territory than Biddy getting kicked off the team and feeling sad about it. And people should be allowed to have different feelings and opinions about things that are complicated. So I don't know anything about the New Testament, but when you read the Bible, the text of the Bible is on one side of the page, typically. And the commentary is on the other side of the page. And this is typically called the gloss. It is essentially a paratext. It is commentary written by the rabbis to comment on how to interpret the Bible. And that text is itself canonical, but in dialogue with the Bible, the commentary or the gloss is a paratext. Heteroglossia is effectively a destabilizing of the idea that there can only be one gloss on a text. And of course, we use the term canon frequently and also loosely in fandom. The concept comes from 
the idea of biblical canonicity. What is the canon and what is the gloss? So by having an author, and I think Ngozi is this kind of author, who is through the mechanism of blog posts, creating a gloss on their own canon, they are effectively trying to provide the text on both sides of the page so that there is no room for alternate readings. Obviously, you have a particular intent with any given story, and that intent could be something really like deep and literary, or it could be like, and then Biddy touches Jack's butt or whatever. All stories have gaps by the nature of being narratives that end. It is not possible to create a narrative that is readable in any real way that does not have some kind of emotional or intellectual gap in it. No matter how hard we try, we actually cannot enter the consciousness of another person. To try to control a reader's reaction in this way is to not only not give them the freedom to read into those gaps, the things that make the story most meaningful for them, which is actually like a really cool thing that does a lot of work for you as an author that you should be chill with, especially when a story talks about very difficult and personal things like coming out, which everyone comes to with a different level of experience and baggage and thought and philosophy. And and because that's going to become such a big part of the comic and because Ngozi's commentary is going to talk about that, I think it does a real disservice to readers because it tries to limit what they're allowed to feel. And this is something that Ngozi you know, tries to do in other ways too as the comic goes on and the conversation around the comic gets more contentious. So I don't know, I, ju- I just feel really gross about it. There's nothing wrong with providing commentary on your own form of a webcomic, which is a, a typical part of webcomic updates, but your readers are still not ever going to be able to f- completely understand your point of view because they are not you. And this is not a bad thing. This is part of making art. Several points in here where it's effectively outright stated, Jack and Biddy are going to get together. Right, so the next comic is going to be Jack stumbling upon Biddy back there and then sitting down next to him and then looking into Biddy's giant dark brown eyes and feeling compelled to wipe his tears away, right? And then they'll touch butts. I get where you're going. And it's like, here's the thing, they should touch butts. In this sort of rereading of the comic, I'm starting to get kind of like frustrated by how like winky lampshaded the fact that like, we all know these two guys are going to get together is, I guess there was uncertainty about how and when. Shouldn't the readers be able to consume this text with the open question of like, will they, won't they? Why does this have to be grounded repeatedly? The last comment on this blog post is about the Twitter, which is in progress. It's going on now. She reproduces a couple of recent-ish tweets from Biddy at the end of this blog post. If you hate Twitter, there's no reason to follow at OMG Shack, please, other than the fact that it's a vehicle to document Jack Zimmerman's flirting with Eric Biddle. Again, can't be said enough. These characters, we're supposed to believe that they're going to grow up, fall in love, and decide to get married within like a couple years of what's going on in the comic, like in the text. So now we have an acknowledgement 
that this growing relationship between them, which is like the fundamental core of the story, is only happening in this secondary location that's not part of the text. And like year two is really the year when the Twitter is an active thing. Toward the very end of this year of the comic, it basically gets locked and it ceases being like a real-time storytelling device and it's not as frequent and it's less reliable in years three and four. I think the year four tweets may only be in the chirp book. I'm not sure they were ever actually actually tweeted. I think they were just composed and put in the chirp book. So this is like really the only year when this storytelling slash engagement platform is like truly active. I guess something that is difficult to resolve, but I am really interested in is, is the Twitter a paratext or is it text? Is it possible that it is sometimes and it's not other times? If the Twitter is indeed also the text, if it's impossible to read the Twitter without understanding check please, I think we all agree to that. And it's impossible to read check please without the Twitter, then perhaps it's less egregious that this, you know, Jack flirting with Minnie stuff, which again is like the, the foundations upon which they decide to get married. It's less significant that it's like, omitted from the text of the comic, possibly, if we are at this point supposed to be accepting the Twitter as a component part of the text. I think that it is meant to be read as the other part of the text in year two, at least. What I will say, though, is that, including information in the Twitter, emotional information about character relationships that never quite makes it into the comic itself is still a bad move. Whether or not it's egregious, I don't know, but it's still a bad narrative move because much as you cannot control how people react to various things, you also cannot control what they read, when, or how. And so if you, even if the Twitter is an integral part of the story, if you include information about an emotional journey in the Twitter and never include any part of it really in a meaningful way in the comic, which by the way, I think Jack flirting with Biddy does happen in the comic. It's just not that frequent. There's at least one pie baking incident, which is, you know, lush with emotion. I think that it is a narrative. Oh, Yeah. I don't really think it's lush with emotion. I think it's lush with Biddy's emotion. I think it's mostly Jack talking about himself to himself, you know, self-centeredly. Whatever, we'll get to it. We'll get, we'll talk about it when we get there. Unless there was a way to integrate the tweets into the comics text, which there would have been. She could have taken screenshots as well and stuck them on the blog. Like this would have been doable. Unless in the physical books, the tweets were integrated into reading the comic, you cannot treat them as part and parcel of the narrative, even if they in fact are part and parcel of the narrative. In a metatextual sense, you just can't because they are not treated with the same gravity as the rest of the text. And therefore you can't expect all readers to engage with them in the same way. Also, Twitter is confusing. Like if you, I mean, it's not that confusing, but things are out of order. If you 
want to read alongside the comic, you have to do more work to read it on Twitter than just clicking the next button. So if it was really an integral part of the story, there would have been other ways, I think, to integrate the proper order of texts that wasn't also just like a fucking chart on her webpage, which is like a horrible way to document text. Long story short, yes, I think they are integral to understanding Check, Please. Yes, I think this is a narrative mistake because it was not well handled formally. I think there are formal solutions to this problem that were not explored. Any final thoughts? Can't wait for them to touch butts. So is that like they're just sort of like simultaneously fingering or? No, you know how birds like have cloaca and they back up towards each other? I picture it more like that. Ah, yes, of course. This is one of those things where in South Park fandom, oh, I was super fucking into like cloaca stuff, birds. I was really into this thing that me and Nahangan were into. She designed our logo, by the way, where Kyle was like a witch. He was like a sorceress. And um, actually all witches in this AU, even if they were men, used female pronouns. So, but I'm just going to say he, he was a sorceress and he and Stan were hooking up and like, I don't know, their hookup was like so amazing that he accidentally turned Stan into a bird. And then he had to both find a way to turn Stan back into a human. And also he like laid a bunch of eggs. It was the best fic I never wrote. Not into it for check plays for whatever reason. For some reason, I just don't see these characters as, as egg laying bird witches. You know, I think, I think Jack could lay some eggs. Do I want to write it? No, but I feel like somebody could. I wrote a fic about, okay, once on FFA, and I truly don't remember when, but it had to have been in like, what, early 2018 or something. Somebody in one of the Jack Please threads was like requesting a fic or like prompting a fic about Jack obviously having laid eggs. And I think the phrasing they used was Jack sitting on eggs. So yeah, I, I wrote a fic about, I was like, oh, this will be a larf. And I wrote a fic about like Jack and Biddy coming home from something and Biddy like backs Jack up onto the counter and he accidentally sits on like some eggs that Biddy had left out, like coming up to room temperature. And Biddy was like, that was for a flan. And I thought it was really funny because obviously that was not what they had meant by sitting on eggs. But I thought it was what would happen. Uh, this has been a joy per usual. Thanks for talking about, you know, Jack and Biddy cloaca sex. Everybody, don't don't tag me in that if you write it. Like, I don't really need it. Please tag me in literally anything. Like, no one's tagging me anywhere. I love it. Uh, and on that note, you know, be safe. Be safe out there, everybody. Well, next time we're going to wait for it. Hockey shit number five about sellies. I can't deal with this. I'm not looking forward to it either. Um, yeah, I've been secret. You can find me at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R on Tumblr, or for more general fandom and or bird witch sex at 
S-K-R-T-O-M-G on Tumblr, or I have an AO3. It's familiar. I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com writing truly horrendous things. Like that's really all that's on there. Um, and you can find me on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. You can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Spotify. All right. That's great. I think that's quite enough of this. And um, yeah, next time. What's a celly? I guess we'll learn. See you there. Bye. Bye. It's arguable. And like, again, we can test this because, you know, we're going to keep reading the comic. I don't know, unless we die. All right, Simpsons Wiki, here we go. Poor Violet is an orphan who lives in Springfield. Her brother is Patches. Patches and poor Violet were abandoned by their mother. Poor Violet had given their only $1 vitamin money to Bart, where he had carelessly used it. Poor Violet often has a cough caused by years of depression that has not been let out. This isn't very well written, this wiki. Poor Violet has also claimed that she is very sick and wishes she can kiss people. Anyway, (laughs) the sidebar of information on this character says, sex, female, status, alive, occupation, (laughs) sympathy orphan. It, truly a deep cut. I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. We're not, this, this isn't like Barney or Krusty or Mr. Burns. This is Patches and Poor Violet. That's the level I'm on.